Today I want to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. All men are created by God and are accountable to God, who is holy and judges us all, without partiality and according to truth, that is, by his absolute moral standards as revealed in his word. As Jesus said, your word is truth, John 17:17. 17, 17. He doesn't just look at the outward appearance of what we do, but also at the heart motivation. That's 1 Samuel 16:7. Therefore, there's a time of judgment for every person. We've seen that each person's eternal judgment happens in two stages. The first stage, immediately after death, determines our eternal innocence or guilt. And this is according to our faith, whether or not we've put our trust in Christ alone for our eternal life. We're not saved by our works, but by trusting in Christ and his work for us. Salvation is by grace through faith, independent of our works. Our eternal salvation or condemnation is settled by this judgment. We either stand guilty before God in Adam on the basis of our own works and righteousness or we stand justified before God in Christ on the basis of his perfect work and righteousness. Now the second stage of judgment which happens immediately after our resurrection determines either a man's eternal rewards if he's been found righteous or his eternal punishment if he's been found guilty. In either case the degree of punishment or reward is according to his works. Thus the first judgment is according to our faith and the second judgment is according to our works. In the Bible, these two issues of faith and works are closely connected. Those who've truly repented and trusted in Christ will start to produce the fruit of good works. Although we've been saved from the judgment of our sins through faith in Christ, we still have to face the judgment of our works for our eternal reward. Although we're all equally saved through faith, we'll all have different degrees of eternal reward depending on our works in this life now. Those who are alive for the rapture are a special case because they don't die, so the two stages happen altogether. Anyone alive in Christ at that time will be raptured and immediately find themselves standing before the judgment seat of Christ in their new bodies to give an account to him of their works and receive their eternal rewards. This appointment with God will be the most momentous event of our life, an everlasting, irreversible judgment that will determine our eternal position and degree of glory and it's imminent so i must warn you about it so you can prepare yourself and make sure you're ready we need to live our life and run our race with a conscious realization and expectancy that at any time we'll stand before the lord to give an account for our christian life and service to god this will motivate us to be on fire for god and put his kingdom first the final judgment does not happen to all people at the same time, for God judges different groups at different times. For example, the final judgment of believers happens a thousand years before the final judgment of unbelievers. Revelation 20 reveals that the first resurrection of the righteous takes place before the millennium, but the second resurrection of the wicked is after the millennium. Therefore, the final judgment of the righteous at the judgment seat of Christ takes place at the rapture and second coming, but the final judgment of the wicked at the great white throne takes place a thousand years later. So, the judgment of believers for, re for reward takes place before the judgment of unbelievers. 
1 Peter 4.16 confirms this. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter, for the time is at hand for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who don't obey the gospel of God? You see, suffering believers can rejoice because they'll be rewarded at this judgment for being faithful and courageous under fire. And Peter continues in verse 18 saying, Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? As with all judgments, the judge will be the Lord Jesus, who said in John 5:22, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honour the Son just as they honour the Father. He who doesn't honour the Son doesn't honour the Father who sent him. John 5:27 says the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment also, because he's the Son of Man. Because Jesus knows what it's like to live as a man, this uniquely qualifies him to be our judge. In the next verses in John 5, Jesus links this judgment to the time of the resurrection. Next, we need to establish the point that the judgment for reward of the true church happens straight after the rapture. The principle of the judgment for believers following their resurrection is clear from Luke 14.14. 14. Jesus said, when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed, since they don't have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When we act unselfishly to help those in need who can't pay us back, Jesus promises we'll be repaid at the resurrection. This confirms that the judgment for reward for the righteous takes place immediately after their resurrection. For us, this means it will be straight after the rapture. Likewise, Jesus said in Revelation 22:12, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So Jesus will distribute his rewards immediately after he comes in the rapture. In Luke 21:36, Jesus said, The believers who escape the tribulation in the rapture will stand before the Son of Man, who will be sitting on his judgment seat. This will take place in heaven, for Jesus promised in John 14 that he'll return for us in the rapture and then take us to be with him in heaven. This again confirms a pre-trib rapture, for if the rapture is at the second coming, Jesus would take us to be with him on earth. 1 Corinthians 4.5 also confirms this judgment will be when the Lord comes at the rapture. He said, judge nothing before the time of judgment until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels or motives of the heart. Then each one's praise or reward will come from God. 2 Timothy 4.1 says, The Lord Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead at his appearing, that's the rapture, and at his kingdom, that's his second coming. In view of this judgment, in 2 Timothy 4.2, he urges ministers to be faithful in preaching the word. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul himself expected to receive a reward on the day of his appearing. He said, finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who've loved his appearing. Obviously, only those who are raptured will stand before Christ in this judgment, so it's a judgment for believers only. It's for all believers of the church age, as Paul says in Romans 14.10, Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we brothers, believers, shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ.
This is not a judgment to determine our salvation, for if we have received Christ, we've already been justified and passed from death to life. It's not a judgment of condemnation on our sins, for on the cross Jesus already paid the penalty and took the judgment for our sins on himself, so there's no condemnation for us in Christ. It's not a judgment to determine punishment for our sins, but to determine our rewards. It's not a judgment to determine if we're sons of God, but to reward our faithfulness as servants of God. In fact, only the sons of God will be raptured to stand before the judgment seat. It's a judgment of all our works, of our life and service as a Christian, to determine our eternal rewards, the glory, honor, authority that we will have throughout eternity. Our capacity, you see, for the eternal riches of his glory is determined by our faithfulness to God in this life. So it's not a judgment for punishment, but for reward. Our works will be rewarded, and our reward will determine our eternal capacity for God's glory. Although God is merciful to forgive us our sins, we should take sin seriously, for it hurts our fellowship with God, and therefore our fruitfulness and our eternal rewards. But when we confess our sin, he blots it out with his blood. There are four major passages on this judgment for reward. The first is Romans 14:10-13. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we, believers, shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The word for judgment seat here is the Greek word bema. It's a high, elevated seat that the Roman emperor would sit on to render judgment or to give out rewards. For example, he sat on a bema at the Olympic Games, before which the victors stood to receive their rewards, their crowns. Likewise, after the rapture, Christ will sit on his judgment seat and hand out his rewards to us. When we've run our race, we'll all stand before the king to receive his rewards. And that will depend on how well we've run our race in this life, just as Olympians receive gold, silver or bronze medals. In light of this coming judgment, Paul points out that it's foolishness for us to set ourselves up as our brother's judge, since this job belongs to the Lord, and he alone is qualified for it. We can sometimes judge actions against the word of God, but we can't know men's hearts or motives, so we're not qualified to be their judge. If we intrude on his work of judgment, we can expect a strict judgment ourselves. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And in Matthew 7, 1 and 2, Judge not, lest you be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use in judging others, it will be measured to you. Likewise, Paul says in Romans 14.4, Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Romans 14.11 says, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. This is a quote from Isaiah 45.23, saying that one day every man will stand before God and be judged. Paul applies this to the judgment seat of Christ, saying that Jesus is the Lord ju judge. This proves that Jesus is God, and confirms the Father has given all judgment to his Son. Romans 14.12 says, So then each of us, individually, shall give an account of himself to God. In Romans 14.10, it spoke of the judgment seat of Christ, but here it says that we will give an account to God, again showing that Christ is God. So, you have an appointment with God, and you can't miss it. Are you ready? It could happen at any time. We will all individually and personally give an account to God for our lives. 
God, who sees all, keeps a perfect record of our every thought, word, and deed, and will bring our whole Christian life before us, and we'll have to give an account for how we've responded to people, situations, and God's will. There'll be no excuses or blaming of others in that day, because whatever others do to us, we're responsible for our own actions. In Romans 14.13 he concludes, Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, rather resolve not to put a stumbling block in our brother's way. Rather than focusing on the failings of others, we need to watch ourselves and make sure we don't cause others to stumble by our sin and harsh attitudes, and so incur an unfavorable judgment on us from the Lord on that day. Knowing that soon we'll be judged by the Lord should cause us to focus our, all our attention on ourselves rather than on the faults and failings of others. We need to put all our energy into following God's will for our life rather than wasting it by judging others. Rather than focusing on others, we need to focus on judging our own attitudes and actions by God's word. As 1 Corinthians 11.31 says, If we would judge ourselves, we will not be judged. Scripture warns us that if we're judgmental against others, God will judge us in a stricter way. James 5.8 says, The coming of the Lord is near. Don't complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Imagine you're one of a group of people about to be judged, and you're waiting in the courtroom for the judge, and in his absence you decide to get up and sit on his seat, and you start to judge and pass out punishments on the others. What will happen when the judge walks in as you're doing that? Who's going to get the strictest judgment? That's why James 2.12 also says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Every day has great significance, for how you live each day will make a difference to your eternal glory. Your future eternal rewards are at stake. The judgment seat of Christ is a strong inducement against sin, especially the sin of judging, which is a proud usurping of the Lord's place and will result in a great loss of reward. Final judgment belongs to the Lord, so it's wise for us to walk in humility towards others rather than pride and superiority, for we have such limited knowledge about people's history, situations and motives. The second major passage on the judgment seat of Christ is 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. We make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him, for we believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive his reward for the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Again we see this is a judgment for believers only. It's a judgment of our works, the things done in the body, in order to determine our reward. And it motivates us to live a life pleasing to him. This will be a thorough, searching examination of the quality of all our works, whether good or bad. God sees past the outward action to the inward thought and motive behind it. Many works that seem good from a human standpoint are in fact dead works, done for selfish reasons, not from love or faithful obedience to God, works of the flesh, not of the spirit, to glorify self rather than God. On that day, the true quality of all our works will be revealed. Every work is either good or bad, and will either be justified and rewarded or condemned. Paul concluded in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. 
His awareness that soon he must stand before the Lord produced in him the fear of the Lord, motivating him to preach the gospel and fulfill God's plan for his life. This judgment on all our works includes our words. Matthew 12:36 says, For every idle word men may speak, they will give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. God will reward our works not our good intentions. As Jesus said, idle, empty words, where we promise to do something but fail to follow through, will not get a reward. Rather, they'll speak against us on that day. Jesus made this point in a parable in Matthew 21:28. What do you think, he said? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it, and he went. And then he came to the second son and said, Likewise, and he answered, I go, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, The first. In evaluating the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus often said, I know your works. We may say, He sees my heart. Yes, he does. But we will be judged by what we actually do in loving and serving him, for this is the ultimate proof of what's in our heart. Jesus said in John 14:15, If you love me, obey my commandments. Telling him we love him is good, but if we don't prove it by our actions, it has little value. Now the third major passage on the judgment seat of Christ is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 to 5. It's required in stewards, that's managers of God's resources, that one be found faithful. But with me, Paul says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time of judgment, until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels or motives of the heart. Then each one's praise or reward will come from God. This passage shows that the quality God is primarily looking for in us is faithfulness in how we've used the gifts, time, money, energy and opportunities that he's given us, saying it's required that one be found faithful. It also confirms that he who judges me is the Lord Jesus. In comparison, the judgments of fallible man are of little importance. Again, we see that when God judges, he doesn't just look at the outward work, but the inner motive behind it for he will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels or secrets of the hearts. The true nature and motive of every work will be revealed. As Jesus said in Luke 8:17. nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees and knows everything, even your heart, so you can't hide anything from him. He will bring everything to the light at the time of this final judgment. 1 Corinthians 4.5 says, Each man's praise and reward will come to him from God. Again we see that it's a judgment for reward, not condemnation. But nevertheless, it will be a fearful thing to have our whole life exposed to the light in such a way. But the more we judge ourselves and deal with our bad attitudes now, the less painful and embarrassing it will be for us then. 
Now the fourth major passage on the judgment of our works is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, where Paul compares our life to the construction of a building. In verse 10, Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Every believer has already received the foundation on which to build his life, which is the Lord Jesus and his righteousness. This speaks of our salvation, by grace through faith in Christ alone. This foundation was laid by those who preached the gospel to us. Once we trust in Christ, our life is established on that foundation. We can't add anything to this foundation by our works to secure it, for it's already perfect. This means our salvation is secure and independent of our works. We're not saved by our works, but by the perfect work of Jesus. That's the foundation. And we mustn't trust in or build on any other foundation. If we're trusting in our own works for our salvation, then we're building on the wrong foundation and all our works will be worthless and be destroyed, as with the man who built his house on the sand in Matthew 7. The true foundation has already been laid when we trusted in Christ for our salvation. And the issue now is how we build on that foundation with our works. Verse 12 says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, the day of judgment will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort of material it is. And if anyone's work which he's built on the foundation endures, he will receive a reward. We build on this foundation of faith in Christ with our works, and all our works fall into one of two categories. They're either, first, gold, silver, and precious stones, or, second, wood, hay, and straw. The issue is, with what kind of material are we building? At the judgment seat, all our works will be tested by the fire of God that burns up everything unworthy. This fire will sweep through the whole of our life, our works, our ministry, revealing the true nature of every work. It will be a quality test, revealing if it was done in the Lord or in the flesh. What is this fire? Revelation 1.14 says about Jesus that his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Jesus will look into your life with his eyes of flaming fire, with penetrating and consuming insight. His fire will go through our whole life, burning up anything that can be burnt. And what remains of our works, having endured this test of fire, will become the basis for our eternal reward. The nature of fire means this judgment will be thorough, sparing nothing inferior in quality. Only what, of God, what is of God will remain. The two kinds of works will be distinguished by their ability to stand the test of fire. The gold, silver and precious stones will be able to pass through without being consumed, but the wood, hay and straw will be consumed by the fire. Everything of bad quality will be destroyed, for nothing of the flesh can endure in God's kingdom. The fire will also purify the works done in God, which please and honour him. So while some works will be burnt up, other works will be refined and rewarded. One kind of work is indestructible and will endure forever, having eternal value. The other kind is combustible and won't stand the test of the fire of God's holiness. Thus the quality of our works is more important than the quantity, as everything of inferior quality will be destroyed. Paul concludes by saying in 1 Corinthians 3.15, If anyone's work is burnt, he will suffer loss, 
loss of reward, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This proves that it's not the judgment of a man's soul, but of his works. Even if all his works are burnt up, his soul will still be saved, because his salvation doesn't stand on his works, but on the foundation of Christ and his work. Remember, this judgment only concerns those who've already uh, rested their faith on the foundation of Christ. So someone whose life's work is burnt up will suffer loss of reward, but not loss of salvation, which rests on Christ alone. This searching examination will be a very difficult but purifying experience as the light of Jesus exposes our true motives and reveals our lost opportunities, where what we did for the Lord is measured against what we should have done. There will be weeping in regret before the Lord wipes away our tears. Let's take a closer look at the three symbols of good works. First, gold symbolizes the divine nature. We, when we were born again, we received the nature of Christ within us. Romans 5.5 5 says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So these are works produced from the nature of Christ in us, which we possess through the new birth. As we walk in the Spirit and the love of God, we produce works of gold. On the other hand, 1 Corinthians 13.3 says, If I have not love, what I do profits me nothing. There'll be no reward. It brings me no reward. Second, silver in the Bible represents redemption. So works of silver are works done in grateful response to Christ's redemption, his redemptive grace, causing us to want to serve him. They spring from faith in what he's done for us. Three, the precious stones are works of obedience to the commands of God, motivated by a desire to please God and receive his praise and reward, rather than the praise of man. Are we doing what we're doing because we want man, men, or God to praise us and recognize us? If we're just doing it for man's approval, we'll stop when no one's looking. But if we do it unto the Lord to please him, we will endure, for we will know that he sees all, even if no one else knows. Speaking of the moment of our resurrection, when we'll be rewarded, 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. See, God sees everything you do, and he'll reward it on that day. It won't be in vain. There are also three examples of dead works, which are exact opposites to the three kinds of good work. First, wood represents human flesh. These are works done in our own strength and self-will, independently from God. They might look good to man, but they are wood and will be burnt. Second, the hay represents human merit, works done in self-righteousness. Third, the straw represents human opinion and wisdom, works that proceed purely from human reasoning rather than obedience. Thus, we must examine first the motive for our works. Is it done for love for God and man from a desire to glorify God? Second, we must examine the obedience of our works. Do they spring from God's will, or are we just following traditions and rituals we happen to like? Third, we must examine the power energizing our works. Are we depending on the power of the Spirit or on the flesh? What a motivation to live for him now, doing good works of gold, silver, and precious stones, and not wasting your life turning out wood, hay, and straw.